you really want to look for ideal clients and listen very specifically to the way that they talk about their problem challenges or aspirations. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 328, which features a conversation with Pamela Slim. Pam is a writer, a speaker, and a business coach who works with small business owners ready to scale their businesses and intellectual property. She's the author of Escape from Cubicle Nation, Body of Work, and most recently, The Widest Net. Pam and her husband, Daryl, co-founded the Main Street Learning Lab in Mesa, Arizona, where they host diverse community leaders and regular small business programming. Pam and Salisa talked about the need for businesses to adopt an ecosystem point of view, how to find your ideal clients and customers, the importance of using problems, challenges, or aspirations to identify ideal customers, four categories of obstacles that typically prevent customers from solving their own problems, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and more. Pam and Salisa spoke in September 2022. Well, I happen to know uh, your latest book is called The Widest Net. I actually have it right here uh, with me. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. And one of the things that you do in that book is make the case that businesses need to adopt this ecosystem point of view. And so I would love to have you explain what ecosystem means to you in this context. And then maybe you could also talk about how you contrast that with the empire point of view. The idea for this book, really the core idea, came out of a a lot of decades of doing work. And being a high picture person, it's hard for me to give a specific answer without giving the context. Anybody who's done Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP, so I have to hit the end, I note. But the bigger context is in the work that I've done, I'm really an author practitioner. And just notice as I'm doing work with clients, the kinds of questions that they have and the kinds of problems and challenges that they're trying to solve. So one thing that I found, especially in recent years of working with people to build an audience, is there's a lot of information out there that literally talks about building your business as an empire, So that's language we use commonly. You know, I'm excited to build my empire. I want to crush my competitors. I want to dominate. We use terms like fans and followers. And there's really this whole idea of pulling people one way into you and positioning yourself as that supreme authority who has the answers to all the questions. And in that, a bit of an extreme version of that model, but really for people who are really um, looking at that as an example of how to grow a business, it can create quite a bit of anxiety for people. First of all, just thinking, I have to be the one who has all the answers. I have to have the perfect qualifications. And it's funny, for me who works with people who have pretty amazing qualifications at what they do, that never stops people from feeling some imposter syndrome. And it also means that it can be a limiting way that you can actually help your customers solve their business if you're trying to create something that often goes far beyond your capabilities and your particular areas of expertise. 
So what I found more in the work that I've done for decades, that was actually my major in college, was community development um, and economic development using non-formal education as a tool for social and economic change um, in Latin America. That was my whole like foundation early on, is all the models I looked at were really integrated. When you're making a change as a business owner is trying to solve a problem, like for my clients to grow their business, there is never just one place that they're looking for information. They're always looking for information, resources, support. They use software and tools. They listen to podcasts. They read books. They go to conferences. They often work with a whole number of different service professionals like me. Uh, my clients work with CPAs, intellectual property attorneys, graphic designers, web developers, etc. So, in this model, which is based on the ecosystem, I center the ideal client uh, in the middle of the ecosystem. And really the work is just to identify where are those natural places in person and online where they are going to look for answers to the problem that you as the business owner or organization are also trying to solve. And so by doing that strategically and looking to find those partners uh, in places, I call them watering holes, that are really aligned with your values and the way that you like to work. It's the difference between just trying to holler out to the internet and get everybody to rush to you in the empire model, or identifying strategically where in their ecosystem has somebody else, kind and generous, already created a group of people where when you show up to speak at a conference or be a guest on a podcast, you're automatically connected to all kinds of people who fit your your mode of ideal client. Well, thank you for giving that that background, um, both your literal background. It's fascinating what you studied in, in school and knowing that that's sort of the your educational background that you're drawing on for this current work. And then just kind of how you came to appreciate the ecosystem view for businesses in particular. And so one of the things that occurs to me, you know, you're talking about ecosystem, you're talking about potential partners, you know, you're never going to be that the, the the legal resource for your clients or that the certified financial planner for them, you know, you're going to outsource that you're going to partner with others. But if you adopt this ecosystem view, are there competitors? Do those still exist? Or is everyone a potential partner? It is all, I think, dependent upon how it is that you choose to define competition. And in practice, the way I think about it in the context of my clients is really what I'm looking for are aligned partners. My clients are very deliberately, they come from a value set. They often uh, have a way of working. It can be a little bit different for different people based on what their personality and how they're wired and what they like. But when I think about recommendations for them of people who would be an ideal fit, it's usually based on sharing values and having something specific that's going to fit the need for that client. There are certain cases where I can have somebody talk to me, even in the early stages of just exploring working together, where I might listen to who they are, what they want and what they need, and think about a, a peer that I have, a colleague who's another business coach, that might be a better fit for them and refer them to that person if that's really the best fit. Because I'm looking for the best fit for me, where I can be bringing my gifts and where I feel confident that I can really help them to solve their problem. Competition, it, I don't look at competition as bad. I'm a very competitive person. I, I laugh with my son all the time. I did martial arts for many years, uh, about 18 years, capoeira, the Afro-Brazilian martial art, and then mixed martial arts. So 
I actually love competition <laughs> and my son did soccer for a long time. Now he's doing MMA. So we always laugh about, you know, he says anytime he's in school, if there's a competition, he's 100% engaged. He's like, if there's a competition, I'm going to win. If there's a quiz, you know, in class. And I have some of that energy too. When you think about it in the context of ecosystem versus empire, in an empire culture and set of values and lens, I might look, let's say you and I are peers in a space. In the empire lens, I think I need to get her out of the way because she's competition to me of just showing everybody that I am the number one person. In an ecosystem side, I look at it like whatever your favorite sport is. Uh, I'm a sucker for sportsmanship too. Like I will weep at good sportsmanship. <laughs> it's watching competitors, if it's the basketball field or soccer field, wrestling mat, whatever it is, when they're going at it and absolutely pushing each other to do the best, their best. And then once they break play, they are hugging each other and laughing and supporting each other and like giving a hand up. That to me is more an ecosystem type of competition where you're pushing each other. There can be a way that you want to be the best in whatever it is that you're doing, but it's not with the energy or intention of crushing the other person. It's about elevating the total level of play and craft. That makes a lot of sense. And I especially like that you point to the fact that you can value both the competitive aspect and the good sportsmanship aspect. They, they, aren't, they aren't opposed necessarily. Yes. So when you talked about the ecosystem, you did say and made it very clear that at the center of that ecosystem is the ideal client. Yes. And I know that when an organization sets out to identify that ideal client, you caution against demographics, or at least demographics as a starting place. So what's a better place to start? I use a method from my friend and colleague, Susan Beyer from Audience Audit, and she's an audience segmentation specialist. She was my mastermind partner for five years, so we know each other very well. And she has a specific approach that I have embraced so much and that I write about in The Widest Net, which is when you are looking to be extremely clear about who you want to connect with, it's actually unhelpful to start with something like demographic. So she often you know, uses the example, if you're just saying my, my ideal client is 55 and drives a Subaru and lives in New Jersey, it doesn't really say anything at all about how to find them, about other people who might be serving those clients. Because when you think about that, just in terms of demographics, if that, for example, is a business owner, you can say it's a business owner and they make $100,000 a year. Okay, that's a little bit more demographic information. But it still doesn't help you to identify what's a core problem or challenge. So Susan always says, start with identifying a core problem or challenge this person has or aspiration that they want to attain. And when you're defining first an audience definition that way, then you can add demographics if they are relevant. So, for example, when I'm thinking about my clients who are scaling through IP, you know, I work with people who are highly talented, who have developed a lot of IP, like books and training programs and workshops, who really want to scale their income, but they don't want to just trade time for money. And like, that's a description of an audience. So they could be 25, they could be 55, they could be any gender, they could live anywhere. 
the values piece can come in where, you know, they may want to scale their business without causing harm, without manipulating people. So that can be an approach they have to business. But it also opens the door for all of my other ecosystem partners to understand too. Always, when you're talking IP, there's an IP attorney. When you're thinking about scaling a business through revenue, there's a CPA. There can be marketing folks, sales folks, branding folks. And so, by definition, when you start with that, describing your audience first by problem, challenge, or aspiration, then it really opens the door for first them just to identify themselves and then for you to look for effective ecosystem partners. At Tagoras, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagoras.com services. Well, that focus on problems or challenges or, or aspirations, knowing that requires specific intimate knowledge of those ideal uh, customers or you know potential customers, their situation, their emotions. And I know you talked a little bit or mentioned at least kind of watering holes, but I would just be curious to know, you know, how would you recommend learning businesses go about uncovering those problems, challenges, aspirations? The best place is always in starting with people who you already do identify as being ideal clients. So I'm just assuming most of the listeners you know, have a base of clients to start with. And we know there's often a range of those that are most aligned, most ideal, and maybe those that are not quite as ideal. You really want to look for ideal clients and listen very specifically to the way that they talk about their problem challenges or aspirations. There's a concept, I actually wrote a blog post about called the magic door. And that is before somebody works with you, before they realize how amazing you are, I think of the metaphor of the Narnia books. I used to love to read all the Narnia books, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So for folks who are familiar with that book or, or movie, there's a little girl, Lucy, that goes through the door of a wardrobe in her uncle's big house and opens up into this, this magic land of Narnia. Before she went through that wardrobe magic door, she had no idea that Narnia existed. And that's the way that it is for clients who work with you. So before they work with you, uh, sometimes we get so stuck in our own language we use that, that we confuse them because we're not using language that they use before they work with us. So people might say, they might come to me saying, you know, I want to grow a six-figure business or a seven-figure business. In my head, I'm thinking, are you sure that's what you want? Like maybe once we get through the magic door, we start to work together, we can get very specific that yes, it might be a dollar number. It also might be something more specifically around profit, or it might be something that you want to design a business model that gives you a lot more time or whatever. But before that client starts to work with you, you just listen to the kinds of things that they are saying that they want. And that's often the language that you can begin to to dig into with them once they begin to engage with you and once you begin to do the work then you can really figure out what are what are the specific issues. I remember in the first 10 years of my business when I was a management consultant in Silicon Valley, people would often say, yeah, we need to do people training. <laughs> Anybody listening who's ever heard that question, you're like, 
Could you say a little more about that? Like, <laughs> what things are you observing that lead you to the conclusion that you need people training? And just listening to that language, noticing what people are saying, very specifically watching comments on LinkedIn, listening to conversations, noticing the kinds of conversations that people have is a way you can begin to tune in. But I really like to center it around your ideal clients because you want to be reaching more of those people. If you think about organizations trying to talk to those ideal clients about their problems, challenges, aspirations, in your mind, is that better done one-on-one? Is it a place where you could potentially do kind of more of a, a mass, you know, online survey? Again, even if you were targeting just kind of ideal customers, so it'd be a little less personal. Any thoughts on kind of, you know, the right mix for how those types of exchanges happen? I, I always look at it as a combination of things. Some of it depends on the time and the resources that are available to an organization. It feels to me like if we buy a pack of gum these days that we get a survey asking, <laughs> some kind of email asking us to do a survey. So so while I am a fan and they could be amazing when well-designed, I think sometimes it be, it's becoming harder and harder for people to fill them out just because there's so much demand from every business to have it. But it's a very useful tool to have consistently. I think in a well-executed listening plan, if you will, which I write about a lot in the book, because in our case here in the, in the, at the Main Street Learning Lab, like we, we spent a lot of time just literally listening to people as they would walk through the door. And you can you can do a similar thing if people are walking through your website, if you're mainly doing that, where you might engage people in questions. You know, what's the biggest question that you have about whatever area you're trying to help them with, right? Um, so there are ways, I think, that you can listen um, on a deeper kind of one-on-one level, but to have things built into the process of how you do business, where you're gathering information from people, you might, uh, a lot of companies or organizations do thought leadership research, the kind of research I was mentioning that Susan Beyer does from Audience Audit, where you're specifically looking at at gathering some more specific data from your clients. But I also like to stay tuned to the kinds of publications people are reading and really just, um, I think social media can be a great listening tool when you notice the kinds of things people post, how they talk about questions, how they respond back. So it's a Usually in the, from a strategic perspective, when working with clients, it's really looking at the big picture. What are their goals and objectives? What do they know and not know? And then activating some of the areas where they can start to have more of a comprehensive assessment process. I was also thinking about when you have this focus on the problems and challenges and aspirations, that means then it's very valuable to understand what is um, preventing them from solving their own problem or challenge or, or reaching that aspiration. And I know that's something you devote some pages to in the widest net. So would you um, just tell listeners about those kind of four typical categories of, of obstacles that tend to prevent people from addressing their own problems or achieving their own aspirations? Yes, I am a training and development person through and through, right, for 30 years. So <laughs> performance improvement has influenced me greatly. Uh, so a lot of the, these four categories are really influenced by my work in training and development. But one can just be specifically knowledge, skills, or information. They just truly do not have the skills or knowledge needed to do what it is that they're trying to do. Um, sometimes there are thoughts. There are ways that they're thinking about what they're trying to do that are getting in the way of them having success. So somebody might think, gosh, I just have a degree in liberal arts. Who in the world 
am I to think that I could be a successful entrepreneur? I need to have an MBA and further training. That's actually a limiting belief. It doesn't really have a lot to do at all with business success as long as you have a clear plan. So sometimes thoughts get in the way of people getting what they want. Tools, there are specific tools sometimes that can just make things easier for people to get done. And that has been a really specific focus that I've always had within my business coaching practice is developing tools, methodologies, frameworks that just help people to get things done easier and faster. And then other times you need people. It may not make sense for you to be doing the thing that you're going to do. Like I could learn how to put a roof on my house, but I would rather pay qualified roofing professionals (laughs) to do that kind of work. So sometimes it's helping people to identify the specific folks they need to solve the problem. Well, it's interesting to hear your um, emphasis on your background in in training and development, because it it occurred to me in looking at those obstacles that really, you know, a course or a workshop or any educational offering could or, or arguably actually should address, you know, at least one of those things. I mean, you know, the people can be that peer-to-peer networking and, and access to others in a network, you know, and of course, the knowledge, skills, and information, a lot of coursework does that. Anyhow, it seems to me that it makes a lot of sense to focus on these obstacles. Well, it does. And it, it's one of the critiques I have when I'm the ranting person shaking my fist at the internet of uh, often, which folks in the profession know, training is not the solution to every problem. And so it's very often the first thing is business owners think of either I just want to increase my revenue, so I'm going to create an online class, or my folks have this problem, let me create a class to address it. And it only is true if knowledge, skills, or information is the thing that they're lacking. And, And quite often, that's not what is preventing them from solving the problem. Right. And I think that uh, thinking about what else a learning business could offer that might address some of those other obstacles, because again, I do think even if it's not a you know specific course, but just that access to the network that so many learning businesses, because they focus on a particular trade or industry or profession, they can connect other people. And, and, and that speaks to the community aspect that I know resonates with you. The widest net method, which is, you know, what you talk about in the widest net, you know, that for you, that really starts with a business's need to understand its root mission. And in the book, you share a bit about your root mission and and this uh, kind of desire to address the lack of visibility of Native American leadership and entrepreneurship and how that kind of led to this Main Street Learning Lab that you've talked about a little bit. And so I would just love to get your thoughts on kind of, you know, big picture broadly, what role leaders need to play in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and if you have any specific thoughts around learning leaders and their role around DEI, would love to hear that as well. For sure. My so my husband is Navajo, he's Diné, and that's that's one specific interest that uh, really has made me connected to a lot of folks here in the Arizona area. We have 22 federally recognized tribes, so. Um, the really part of that root mission came when I did a 23 city tour around the United States, teaching the early stages of a framework for the widest net book. It was research for the book. And on a whim, I just asked uh, from the first city in Berkeley, California, how many of you have ever seen a native American business presenter at a business conference speaking on a business topic? And then I asked the same question in 23 other cities, you know, Seattle, New York, Chicago, all over the place. Only seven people ever had, and four of those were in Canada, in Vancouver, Canada. So 
knowing that my husband had been an entrepreneur for a long time, I had been in conference rooms of tens of thousands of Native entrepreneurs. So the, the problem wasn't that they didn't exist, is that there wasn't any visibility. And so it, this was just a, you know, a germ in the seed for the learning lab, which we structured in order to just highlight the leadership that exists but is rarely seen in community. And as a model that really is baked into a lot of the way that I see community, I think overall, we all can have things that we miss based on our own lived identity, like what we're used to seeing and not. I have done work um, around inclusive community building for really the last three decades, um, formally and informally, but even folks who are really deeply steeped in that work acknowledged as we started to talk about it more that they weren't often even thinking about inviting a Native American speaker, right? Like it was just so, it's, there's such lack of visibility. So there's one thing when approaching your work and thinking about work, a favorite series of questions I have is who is here, who is not here, and why aren't they here? This can be a foundational place. If you're thinking about your own organization and you're really looking at learning in your organization, um, you can use that lens to, to really understand who might be in a room, who might be in a position of leadership. If you think about it in the context of your customers, you can also ask those same kind of questions. It's really relevant for a lot of people these days to look at it in their employee base. The thing about answering the question of, both who is not here and why aren't they here, sometimes you need other perspectives in your ecosystem. You need people that represent different communities to say, hey, have you thought about folks um, from you know, this particular background or identity that you might not think about? You, and if you are not the identity that you're looking for that's missing, you can't answer the question of why aren't they here? <laughs> that's a matter of deeper engagement, of listening. And to me, the, the overall issue of really equity and inclusion is just we want our organizations, our customer base, our communities to be representative of the people who live there. And we want to create a, a system and structure that supports access and equity for all people. And so it's really more a matter of, to me, it's like I can't imagine not focusing on that because it's just something that I think is fundamental to what's going to create a more healthy, flourishing kind of environment. Well, this is interesting. Since we talked a little bit about demographics at the beginning, this seems like a place where actually looking at demographics can help you um, understand better who's not there. Because, you know, if you have this sort of broader definition of the ideal client, but then you can look at the demographic level and say, okay, even folks who meet this criteria, we're still not seeing enough Native American representation or enough people with a disability representation or whatever it might be. Exactly. And that's where it becomes so important where you you are looking. I, I always use the, the statistics around venture capital investing within the startup world. The latest stats, I think the high is 2.9% of women-led companies get funding from VCs. And that's the high from like 2.1%. So you can see where we, and that's, I imagine, and that's all from all uh, identity backgrounds. So you can imagine for a black woman, for a native woman, you know, it's, I think I saw the statistics for a black woman was 0.35% within that 2.9. So that's where you start to see when you slice some of the demographics, how different it is and how important it is to look that way. But fundamentally at first, if we look at making sure that 
great ideas are funded, making sure that we're bringing the very best technology and companies, you know, to light and growth in the market to solve our problems. That might be the biggest problem we have. Then we start to look through the lens of what is the current behavior of venture capitalists and who's getting funded and not. And then it really goes into a theory of change of, you know, why do we think that they're not getting funding and people can have different ideas as to what women in this case need to do in order to get funding. I would love to have you talk a little bit more about the Main Street Learning Lab and in particular, just intrigued by the name and thinking about our listeners who are, you know, all about providing learning, mostly formal learning in the case of, you know, continuing education or um, professional development, but talk a little bit more about how you envision this learning lab and, and what it's doing. Yeah, so we have here in downtown Mesa, uh, we always laugh because in the Phoenix metro area, Mesa has often seen as the, the poor cousin who has to sit at the kids' table at the holidays. <laughs> We've had this reputation for many years of just being like, nobody really thinks about us. And actually, there's been huge, tremendous growth that's been happening in our area. There's a whole field of study around innovation districts, which say that where you're trying to stimulate economic development within an area that you want to make sure that you have a couple different kinds of primary organizations. So there's an um, academic institution. So we just have a brand spanking new building from Arizona State University that was just built two blocks down. That's really critical to have an academic anchor. You want to have things like learning labs, maker spaces. We have a maker space a couple doors down. We have what we create more of like an innovation you know, type of studio, as well as businesses, cafes, art places, all of that. Our innovation district in downtown Mesa is around the creative economy. And so our space, I always think about it in the context of that, that part of what we recognized was missing as we, we thought, well, this something is wrong here. We know so many Native American entrepreneurs, but there's no visibility and there's no connection to opportunities for the kind of investment that's going into our community. So we created a physical space where primarily people from those communities, and for us, it's not just Native American, it's often BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, you know, Latinx, Asian American folks can really come together and do what they feel that they want to do. All events are really led by and for the community. And so we've had everything from the launch of the Native American Entrepreneur Group here. We've had political campaigns that were launched from here from candidates of color. We've had Navajo language classes. We have had uh, startup life support group, mastermind groups, but from a diagnosis and learning perspective, like a fundamental belief that I have is generally community knows what it needs. And for me to be supportive, we create a beautiful space. It's very beautiful, filled with art, beautiful light. We have an entire whiteboard wall, flexible furniture so that people can set it up the way that they want. And it is a magic thing. And for anybody listening, whoever has a chance to visit, we'd love to have you here. But something just magical happens when people walk through the door where I think they feel good. My husband is a traditional healer. So they're just kind of good vibe and energy here. <laughs> people walk in and they just tend to kind of like exhale and then through conversation that we have, begin to like dream and think about doing things. So we have what's called, and I, I detail this a lot within the book in terms of a method of building community, we have what's called the sprouting effect. So I mentioned we had the Navajo language classes, which we did in partnership with the Phoenix Indian Center to have classes here in Mesa. Somebody showed up and attended, uh, Bobby Nez, 
she was in the space. She looked around and she was like, this is really cool. And she said, can we have our Native American book club meeting here? And I was like, sure, absolutely. So then the Native American book club started meeting here. And then, you know, from there, there was another group, somebody who attended who said, oh, I'd love to do a, to, to shoot a YouTube series here. Can I start that? So it's a natural sprouting effect, really looking at it from a root perspective of what these leaders need is not more training. It's beautiful space, supportive space where they can really just stretch and grow. We fund it ourselves, so there's no, no charge for people who use it. What the benefits have been as we look over six years is there's something that's very important in Main Street for people who do any kind of local work. A lot of folks have not felt safe here. They don't feel safe. They can be profiled. They've had a bad experience. Their relatives have had a bad experience historically, you know, here downtown. So just the fact that people are showing up physically and coming into the space and getting comfortable has become a place where then also they might be more inclined to come back, to visit other cafes, to visit stores, and to have what we always love. There was a there was an older Navajo grandma who stopped by the other day, and she was just walking by and saw the space because we have art in the windows as well and came in. And we just got to know her and she sat down, we started talking to her and then she just had a big smile and she said, oh, you know, now I have a home base here in Mesa, like I kind of have a home here. And that's that feeling of having a place of connection and belonging that, as we know, in so many different ways, learning and community development is such a critical thing. Pamela Slim is author of The Widest Net, Body of Work, and Escape from Cubicle Nation. You'll find links to Pam's site and her LinkedIn profile in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 328. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 328, you will also see options for subscribing to the podcast. And we'd be grateful if you would subscribe if you haven't yet, as subscriptions give us some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen, especially if you enjoy the show. Salise and I personally appreciate reviews and ratings, and they help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 328, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.